This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the February 2024 Eye on the Market podcast. This one's called Five Easy Pieces. It was a movie from 1970 with Jack Nicholson where he plays an oil rig worker who was also a former classical pianist. So, you know, in Hollywood, anything is possible. Um, there's five topics I wanted to talk briefly about that uh, we wrote about in the Eye on the Market this week. One of them has to do with the unending dominance of the, of the Magnificent Seven stocks. Uh, I would like to uh, talk a little bit about on a related topic on open source large language models, given that N NVIDIA is such a huge part of the MAG-7 right now. Um, a quick follow-up on the no labels movement, where I got into some debates with some clients at some conference recently, um, an Armageddonist update, which I'll explain, and then some comments on bottom fishing in Chinese equities. So let's start with... Uh, a discussion of the MAG-7 stocks, which, of course, you all know at this point, are are completely dominating equity markets. Last year, they returned 76%. The rest of the market returned 14%. But I think it's important to keep in mind a couple of things. First, um, unlike 2000, 2001, these stocks are making a lot of money. Um, uh, their sales growth is seven times higher than the rest of the market. Their margins are ex were expanding at the end of last year instead of contracting. Um, their margins are you know three times, almost three times higher than the rest of the market. So it's it's not a profitless boom. The bigger concern is that it's a profit oriented boom and that these companies are increasingly dominating um, not just market capitalization but income as well. So. That's why we spent as much time as we did in the outlook thinking about antitrust issues, because that's really the only thing on the horizon that I think could seriously dent the overall MAG-7 story. Uh, Tesla's run into uh, a buzzsaw uh, that's very specific to it recently, uh, mostly related to pricing competition in, in Europe, the US, and in China, uh, and also note that their fourth quarter earnings were flattered by a one-time non-cash uh, tax allowance adjustment that I explained in the eye on the market. But in any case, um, the MAG-7 story just keeps rolling. And um, we have a chart in here uh, from some of my colleagues in the investment bank who do excellent uh, research on uh, how the market concentration has now reached the highest level since 1972. They don't think that's a great thing. They note that historically surges in market concentration have either preceded or coincided prior recessions. So um, they're not agnostic about this. Um, one thing I'll, I know for sure is that market concentration makes life a lot more difficult for active equity managers. Uh, last year was one of the worst alpha years on record in terms of excess returns. Only 23% of uh, managers uh, managing against the Russell 1000 type index outperformed. And that compares to uh, almost triple that level, 66% in 2022. So um, the, the, this kind of stock market concentration to stuff up is very tough generally on the active management industry. Um, again, this is quite different than the, the bubble that took place in 2000, 2001. And, um, you know, the big risks here 
or whether it's the Biden administration or a future Trump administration, whoever, um, a, a political reaction to this kind of earnings concentration in addition to market concentration. Uh, now, with the AI revolution being at the core of MAG7 outperformance, uh, I wanted to just talk a little bit about this report that came out quietly from Microsoft, of all people, last year. So uh, Microsoft, as everybody knows, um, is heavily invested in the success of OpenAI. They're also doing their own work with open source language models. And this, you know, this raises a lot of questions about uh, the the monetization of of large language models, the the, the big closed ones, whether it's OpenAI or Google's version or anything else. So what what Microsoft did, um, and this is not a typo, they took an open source model from Meta that Meta had released called Llama. They adapted it in in ways we describe in the piece. And then they went to see how it would do um, uh, compare in, on questions related to biomedicine, finance, and law uh, compared to some of the big, highly trained, private, closed models. Uh, so one example in finance, they compared it to Bloomberg GPT, which took like a billion computing hours to create, you know, a million dollars to create. Uh, I think Microsoft created, Microsoft spent less than $100 reportedly on their version of an open source model. And as you can see here in the chart, we've discussed in the piece, the performance is roughly the same uh, in biomedicine, finance, and law as, as the big, expensive, complicated closed source models. The open source models require work to integrate. You need a lot of programmers to kind of figure out what to do with them. But once you have that in-source talent, you have big, greater transparency. You have more version control. You can use whatever servers and cloud providers you want instead of the ones required by the closed models. Um, you have less exposure to the business issues like the shenanigans that took place at, at OpenAI this year. You don't have to share your private data with people who own that model, who might censor what you do with it. Uh, and you could even run some of these open source models on a single GPU or even a MacBook instead of a huge GPU cluster. So I, I, I this was a quiet paper. Microsoft didn't make a lot of fanfare about it. But to me, it, it does raise questions about uh, the profitability of uh, of some of these large language model efforts, and and also I, uh, there's a guy that I talk to a lot about this kind of stuff who will remain nameless, but he he does tell me the golden age of of uh, large language models in some ways is already over. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, for the last few years, language models have been able to surreptitiously just scrape all the data uh, without the people who own it knowing repackaging it and selling it and calling it research. And um, he said that golden age is over. So um, there are a lot of interesting use cases for large language models, but uh, I'm very curious to see the follow through in terms of monetization and then what impact that would have on 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 some of the premiums priced into some of these stocks. Okay. So another thing, interestingly, that happened was I was speaking at a conference in Utah about this weird triple witching hour scenario where the no labels party in the United States runs a slate, uh, which they say they may do. Um, and let's say they win four or five states and they win enough delegates to prevent both Trump and Biden, presuming they win their respective nominations, from reaching 270, right? So 
I started to talk about what would happen if no candidate passed 270 and the rules around contingent elections that go into the House of, Re of Representatives to pick the president. And the hand was raised in the front of the audience from a CEO who is is actually so active in the no labels movement that their email handle is it's nolabels.com. So, uh, and this person objected to my line of thinking by saying, well, well, we would never let it get to a uh, contingent election. We would do some horse trading to form a unity government before a contingent election took place. In other words, we would throw our electoral support to either Trump or Biden in some kind of negotiated, coherent way. Uh, maybe. Um, <laughs> this is real complicated. The U.S. system is not set up for that kind of horse trading. You can do it at a convention, but you can't do it after the general election. At least I don't think so. And there's four major reasons why. First, no labels can't force their electors to switch votes. They can decide whatever it is they want to do. Now, they can, they can suggest they do it. They can try to compel them to do it, but they cannot control them. And the, those electors, should they win any, would be able to do whatever they want. Number two, around two-thirds of states have actual elector binding laws in place that expressly prohibit electors from switching their votes. So, um, and even in the states that don't have them, I could imagine an avalanche of constitutional challenges from voters saying they were disenfranchised. So, unless somehow the the states that no labels win happen to be states that have absolutely no elector binding laws and that all constitutional challenges fail. I see that as a huge hurdle. Two other things, even if they get past that point, on January 6th, the, there's an Electoral Count Reform Act that requires electors to be faithfully given. And then this is a term that's long existed in the, uh, in the constitutional law community for a couple hundred years. But the bottom line is, a faithless elector is somebody that votes for a candidate that's different than the one that they were allocated to based on the general election results. And you could imagine that Congress on January 6th would, would basically reject some of those no-labels electors that switched parties. And then the last thing is the no-labels people have very, been very kind of vocal about, well, you know, we would throw our support depending upon a unity government where we get certain cabinet posts and this and that. There are there are laws, federal, uh, you know, and criminal laws against um, that you'd have, they'd have to avoid violating by horse trading their support for their electoral vote. So, I think this is a huge gauntlet here, uh, and in the in the weird triple witching scenario, triple witching hour scenario, where no labels wins enough electors to prevent Trump and Biden from reaching two seventy. I think the higher probability is that you would end up with the 12th Amendment, the contingent election of the House. So you can read more about that if you're interested. I enjoy that kind of stuff. Um, one of the other things I enjoy, and one of my guilty pleasures, everybody has guilty pleasures. Mine is, mine is rather benign, um, in addition to fishing, is I like to look at the consequences of Armageddonism, which is the media tends to flock to people who have the most horrifyingly, terrifyingly calamitous things to say. Now, there's there's been a lot of books written on on behavioral human instinct towards bad news rather than good news, and and a bunch of newspapers and magazines have historically conducted experiments where all they do is put good news on the cover and the um, 
and their newsstand sales go down by two-thirds. So the media loves quoting uh, a bunch of these people, and I, we show the names in the chart, and you can, you'll can you probably recognize a bunch of these doomsayers. And so we looked at the end of 2019, we looked at their forecast, and we said, well, what if on the day of their prediction of disaster, we switched a dollar from uh, stocks into bonds? by taking the dollar from the S&P 500 and moving it to the Barclays aggregate. And uh, by the end of 2019, you would have lost somewhere between 30 and 60% by listening to these statements, which were made between, let's say, 2010 and 2016. So COVID hits. This is amazing. COVID hits, uh, the market collapses. And now the army deadness think, okay, I've been bailed out by a global pandemic, which I didn't predict. And so then... After the markets had already declined, you know, by by 20-30%, they doubled down with some of these hilarious quotes about, you know, we're heading, this is going to be the worst bear market in my lifetime. This is a deep depression. I expect the S&P to lose two-thirds of its value over the coming years. And then, so we have a chart in here where we plot these, um, where we plot the timing of these statements against what happened in the market, which of course has almost doubled since a lot of these states were, statements were made. Um, you know, this is all fun and games, but it it is it it, it is a it's a reminder that the timing of investing is important. Um, there can be deep corrections in markets for different reasons, but usually the worst time to double down on them is after the market's already gone down. Now, one place where Armageddon is happening is if you're an investor in Chinese equities, which has uh, over the last couple of years been quite the train wreck. Um, and there's lots of different equity indices in China. Most of them are doing roughly the same kind of thing. Um, we, there's There was a spike in trading volumes recently, and a lot of times a spike in trading volumes tends to coincide with the bottom in a market because you get kind of seller capitulation. So we're, we're looking at that. But there's some bigger picture issues that I just want to talk about for a minute. Um, so we have a chart showing that the PE multiple on China has gone down to around 10 times, which is pretty low, particularly compared to valuations in the developed world. But I, I just want to close with two things. First, China at a 10 PE is looks cheap, but there's a lot of things that trade at below a 10 PE. And we have this giant bar chart in here that looks at them. So if you're value hunting, you know, European energy, US energy, S&P 500 banks, uh, Asia Pacific energy, S&P 500 telecom, um, the small cap telecom, Asia Pacific utilities, European financials, Brazil, uh, Italy, Poland, Austria, Hungary, Turkey, all of these things trade below a 10 PE. So, you know, if, if you're interested in bottom fishing, China's not the only place to look. And then, you know, the other thing I want to close with is just some comments on on China, the bottom fishing, and then the, and then what to watch for and the TARP bill of 2008. So in 2008, I wrote a piece on October 14th talking about how we had become very bullish on U.S. equities at that point in time. Why? And up until then, the government was in, in, dealing with a crisis of, of solvency perceptions on the banks, and their first plan was to buy all the bad loans from the banks 
put them in a bad bank, work them out over time, and the losses would basically accrue to taxpayers who would be funding the acquisition. The markets didn't respond to that. And I and I talked to some people at the IMF who had done this study showing that in prior decades, if you have a banking crisis of some kind or a solvency crisis of some kind, buying bad loans doesn't work well in terms of boosting GDP and the equity market. But when the government steps in and buys the liabilities and equity uh, positions of the banks, you get a, a kind of a durable recovery and confidence growth in the stock market. So the TARP bill, which failed the first time it went up for a vote, but then passed. When TARP passed, we became more confident that we had hit a bottom. And, you know, we had a, we had another bottom test in March 2009, but but buying in, in October of 2008 would have made you a lot of money over the next, you know, two, three, five years. So my conclusion on China is they've had this monstrous real estate bubble. Um, the value of the housing stock to to personal spending, as one example, was three times higher than the U.S. at its at its peak. Home price to income ratios four times higher. Right, this was a crazy bubble in China. And so, um, the if we got to the point where China did what the U.S. government did in two thousand eight, which is to say, okay, we're going to attack the heart of this problem and we're going to recapitalize not just the regular banks, but all those shadow banks as well. A lot of the larger ones have been failing recently. That would give me more confidence that China was an investment rather than a trade. Yet, could China bounce 10 or 15%, go up and down based on some monetary policy announcements? Maybe. But to really get bullish on China for the longer term, uh, I would need to see an aggressive recapitalization of the banking system uh, both the regular one and the shadow one, and and certainly not strong arming domestic mutual funds into buying shares and and you know and going after short selling. So that's my take on Chinese bottom fishing and a bunch of other things. Thank you for listening. Our next eye on the market paper will be in early March, and will be our annual energy piece. And this year it's called Electrovision for reasons you might be able to imagine. So uh, see you next time. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended